Hello, and welcome to Perspectives, a podcast by the Public Health Review, a graduate, student-led, online, peer-reviewed, open-access public health journal published by the University of Minnesota Libraries. My name is Caroline Sell, and I'm the 2019 podcast editor of Perspectives. Thank you so much for joining us and engaging in our public health conversations. In this episode, we wanted to learn more about the opioid epidemic. First, we talked with Colin Planelp from SHADAC, the State Health Access Data Assistance Center based here at the University of Minnesota. Here's our interview. Can you start by telling listeners your name, organization, position, and your primary research interests and the focus of your work? Sure. My name is Colin Planalp, and I'm a senior research fellow at SHADAC, a health policy research and technical assistance center uh, at the University of Minnesota. And the main areas of my work and research are uh, providing technical assistance to states that are implementing uh, healthcare payment delivery system reform, especially in using uh, measurement to inform their their policy making and to uh, evaluate the the effects of their their uh, interventions and their refor- their reforms. And also lately, a lot of my work has been on the opioid crisis, in monitoring the opioid crisis and advising states and federal agencies on uh, how to measure their interventions in the opioid crisis and, uh, and uh, evaluate how, how those interventions are going. Thank you. And how long have you been working at SHADAC and how did you become interested in this particular um, focus on the opioid epidemic? Mm-hmm. I've been working at SHADAC for five years, and uh, while I've been interested in the opioid crisis for several years, I first started doing research on it in 2016. That started as part of a uh, research project that I was working on to evaluate the impacts of the Affordable Care Act in the state of Kentucky, and one of the topics that we were interested in researching was the potential impacts of the ACA to uh, increase access to substance use uh, disorder treatment. Uh, And the the ACA can do that by expanding access to treatment uh, for people with substance use disorders. And uh, what we found in the process of, of researching that topic in Kentucky was that Kentucky was a particularly interesting case study because it uh, has uh, especially high rates of opioid use disorder, especially high uh, high death rates of from opioids, because it kind of originated in the in the epicenter of the opioid crisis where it really all started. And have you been able to see how this research that you've conducted on Kentucky has been able to expand to other states? Yeah. So what we've done is based on that initial interest in the state of Kentucky and interest that we had. Uh, that we had heard from other states, we started expanding that work into uh, examining the opioid crisis and monitoring that across the United States. And at the state level, we have pulled together uh, data on the state level on the opioid crisis 
and put that on Shadac State Health Compare website as a tool for state policymakers and and journalists and really anyone who's interested in the crisis so that they have access to easy to use and understand data to to monitor the the opioid crisis. Have you seen that um, other states have actually been using this? You said this was done in 2016, so now have you been able to evaluate how everything has been going since then? Uh, so what we what we do is on some projects we have uh, we we have advised states on uh, data sources that they can use to monitor the opioid crisis to see how things are changing, which is important because the opioid crisis is really an evolving topic. Uh, we have advised states on uh, on for example quality measures that they can use to to ensure that opioids are being prescribed. Uh, Using best practices, and uh, what what we found is that, that states are really interested in using those data to to keep track of, of what's happening in, in in their states. So, for listeners who might not be familiar with this particular area of public health, um, how would you describe like a high level overview of the opioid epidemic? Mm-hmm. So, the first thing that is important to discuss is what opioids are. So opioids are a class of multiple drugs that uh, impact the opioid receptors and the pleasure centers of the brain. So they can be useful for treating pain, but uh, opioids also can create sensations of intense pleasure, and because of that, they're prone to abuse. Uh, Opioids can also be highly addictive, uh, which can cause people to... uh, continue to seek out and abuse opioids, even when they recognize that it's causing themselves harm. Because of that, once someone is addicted to opioids, uh, and, and because all opioids are chemically related and act on those same uh, opioid receptors in the, in the brain, a person, once they're addicted to opioids, if they're no longer able to access the, their original opioids that they began using, may switch to a different type of opioid. The, the common example that we hear about are people who may have become uh, addicted to opioid painkillers because they were involved in an auto accident or a, a workplace injury, uh, that they're no longer able to access uh, prescription opioids from a doctor, so, so they may switch to uh, illicitly trafficked opioids like heroin or synthetic opioids uh, that, that they obtain uh, through illicit sources. The, the, other, the other important side of the opioid crisis to, to keep in mind is uh, how, how it began. So it's commonly understood that the opioid crisis began with prescription opioid painkillers uh, in the 1990s and 2000s. Healthcare providers began prescribing a lot more opioid uh, painkillers to treat people's pain. And in parallel with that increase in prescribing of opioids, we see in the data a, a gradual increase in the, in the rates and numbers of opioid overdose deaths. Uh, by 2011, the CDC recognized that, that change in, in the rates of opioid overdose deaths and declared uh, deaths from prescription opioids to, to be an epidemic. In the years immediately following that, that there were some positive signs suggesting that, that efforts by healthcare providers and uh, drug makers and policymakers to, to reduce access to prescription opioid painkillers was having some 
some progress in reducing the, the rates of death from opioid painkillers. But what we see now is that uh, during that same time that death rates were kind of plateauing or, or slowing from opioid painkillers, they were increasing rapidly from illicit opioids, such as heroin first and then later uh, synthetic opioids as many people started switching to sources of illicit opioids when prescription opioids became harder to access. And so kind of where are we at now in this history of the opioid epidemic? Mm -hmm. So currently where we are is uh, since around 2011, rates of, of death from prescription opioids began to slow, but uh, during that time, rates of death from uh, heroin and synthetic opioids began increasing substantially. So d despite that, that decrease that we've seen in growth from prescription opioid deaths, we're still seeing the, the opioid crisis uh, accelerating, uh, driven these days mostly by uh, illicitly trafficked synthetic opioids such as fentanyl. Um, so what has been um, some of the biggest surprises that you've seen in your work? Mm -hmm. So probably the, the biggest surprise to me in researching the opioid crisis is how rapidly it has been evolving in the past few years. The opioid crisis began with prescription opioids, and it really took more than a decade for, uh, for prescription opioid deaths to reach the point where the CDC declared them to be an epidemic and really began drawing a lot of concern. But within five years, deaths from heroin grew 400% and outpaced uh, deaths from prescription opioid painkillers by 2015. And soon after that, uh, deaths from synthetic opioids like fentanyl uh, grew 900% and now are uh, higher than either heroin or, or uh, prescription opioid painkillers. Can you talk a little bit about the populations that this is most affecting in mm -hmm. the U.S.? So it's, it's important to keep in mind when you think about the, the opioid crisis that, uh, that there really aren't any segments of the, of the U.S. population that have been completely unaffected. We, we see increases over time in all uh, racial and ethnic groups. We see increases over time in just about all uh, age groups, children, young adults, middle-aged adults, elderly adults. Uh, we see increases over time in different geographies. So we see increases in rural areas, small and medium-sized urban areas, large urban areas. Uh, we see increases over time across both men and women. Uh, th there are certain segments of the population uh, or, or certain areas of the country that are more affected by different types of opioids. For example, in urban areas, we see higher death rates from synthetic opioids and heroin, and in rural areas, we tend to see higher death rates from uh, prescription opioid painkillers. Uh, certain uh, racial and ethnic groups see different breakdowns. Uh, whites tend to have higher rates of death from, uh, from prescription opioid painkillers, where uh, African Americans tend to have uh, s somewhat higher death rates from uh, heroin and synthetic opioids. 
Uh, but back to my original point, there's, there's really no segment of the population that has been unaffected by the opioid crisis. Everyone's seen large increases, or at least measurable increases in overdose deaths over the past couple of decades. So at this point, are you hopeful about the future of the opioid epidemic? Um, if so, what would you um, expect would be the cause of the decline in um, a lot of these opioid um, deaths? And if not, what do you think is preventing these declines from happening? What really needs to be done in order for the opioid death rates to decrease? Mm-hmm. So we're starting to see some glimmers of hope in the opioid crisis. Uh, From 2016 to 2017, death rates from prescription opioid painkillers and heroin both saw no increase in in that one-year period. Uh, It's it's likely that 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 was affected at least in part by efforts to to intervene in the opioid crisis. For example, uh, efforts to, to... be more careful in how opioid painkillers are prescribed, uh, efforts to reduce harm from the opioid crisis. For example, many states and, and local governments have made efforts to, to make uh, naloxone, uh, a drug that can, re- can reverse opioid overdoses, uh, more available to, uh, to police or the general public or first responders. And a lot of states have made efforts to make access to uh, opioid use disorder treatment more available. An an important step in in, uh, making treatment more available is making sure that that's evidence-based, such as uh, medication-assisted treatment that usually uses uh, medications such as uh, buprenorphine, uh, methadone, or uh, naltrexone in combination with psychosocial treatment, w- w- which evidence shows is more effective in, uh, in, uh, in ensuring treatment is effective for, for people with opioid use disorders. So what do you see as the biggest barriers to effectively managing this out, um, opioid epidemic? So probably the biggest barrier is how rapidly the opioid crisis is, is changing back to what I mentioned a, a moment ago about starting to see some glimmers of hope in uh, prescription opioid painkillers and heroin, uh, wh- while that may be at least in part driven by uh, efforts to intervene in the crisis, that may also be in part driven by just changes in the types of opioids that people are using. During that same one-year period from 2016 to 2017, uh, we saw a, 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 about a 50% increase in the deaths from synthetic opioids. And we're also seeing other changes in the opioid crisis in, during that same time period where heroin and synthetic opioids began to see that, that rapid increase since around 2011, 2013. We've also seen some some stark increases in death rates from cocaine and psychostimulants, such as methamphetamine. So there are growing concerns that the opioid crisis may be breaking through a a new barrier where it's it's pushing beyond only opioids and uh, now starting to push into non-opioid drugs uh, like I said, such as cocaine and methamphetamine. And one major concern there is we don't have those same uh, effective treatments 
for cocaine use disorder and methamphetamine use disorder as we have for, uh, for opioids. We don't have those same medication-assisted treatments with methadone or buprenorphine uh, for those other drugs. So, so it's important for, uh, for public health professionals and for policymakers and healthcare professionals to, to keep in mind the, the evolving nature of the opioid crisis, to watch where, where, uh, where emerging trends appear to be going so, so that efforts to, to head off those changes can, can be addressed before that they just crop up in a new area and, and pick up rapidly. So why would you say the opioid epidemic is something that everyone, not just public health professionals or policymakers like you mentioned, should be concerned about? And what can other um, professionals across the board in the United States do about it? So I think it's important for everyone in the United States to understand about the opioid crisis, uh, both because of the, the massive scale of the opioid crisis and because of its potentially dire consequences. So in the United States, currently, uh, data show that there are more than 2 million people who report an opioid use disorder. There, there are numerous uh, negative outcomes of, of substance use disorders, but one of the most obvious and, and, uh, and devastating are overdose deaths. And what we see are that Every year since the early 2000s, tens of thousands of people have died from, from opioid overdoses. Just in 2017, the, the, the year that the most recent data are available for, uh, nearly 50,000 people died in the United States from opioid use disorders, from, from opioid overdoses. And when you look since 2000, nearly 400,000 people have died from opioid overdoses throughout the United States. And those data are likely undercounted because of, of uh, limitations in, in how those deaths are reported. So, so when you think about it, since 2000, there have been uh, essentially the same size as the population of Minneapolis have died from opioid overdoses across the country. How would you like the conversation around the opioid epidemic, the opioid crisis, um, to change? Or how would you, in an ideal world, want that to be discussed in the general public? So I think it's important to recognize for the, the general public and among policymakers that to really get a handle on the opioid crisis is going to take a multifaceted approach because the opioid crisis is so complex. There have been efforts in the past to uh, intervene in the opioid crisis, for example, by reducing access to prescription opioid painkillers. And uh, research evidence and our observations of what's happened with, with that kind of single focus approach is that that runs the risk of just pushing the opioid crisis into new areas. So because the opioid crisis is so complex and has proven itself time and time again to have the capacity to evolve into, into new areas. Uh, it's important to take that multifaceted approach and to look at areas such as uh, reducing access to prescription opioid painkillers, but at the same time increasing access to uh, substance use disorder treatment, and other areas such as reducing harm of, of uh, opioid use disorder, such as uh, 
increasing access to naloxone that can reverse opioid overdoses and save lives that way, as well as uh, programs such as needle exchanges, which can, for people who are, who are using opioids uh, intravenously, reduce the, the, uh, the, the prevalence of bloodborne infections, such as hepatitis C or HIV. The other important thing for uh, the, the general public and policymakers to keep in mind and understand is that the opioid crisis has played out over at least two decades in the United States. There aren't going to be any quick fixes. I, th I think that it's possible and it's imperative that our country uh, get a handle on the opioid crisis and, and uh, stop and reverse it but it's going to take a long time. It's, it's taken two decades for the United States to build up this problem, and it, it's not going to happen overnight for us to dig our way out of it. Thank you so much, Colin, for taking the time to speak with us. We also wanted to hear about the opioid epidemic from a provider's perspective. So we talked with Dr. Victor Sandler, a physician focusing on palliative care at Fairview Home Care and Hospice in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Here's our interview. Can you tell listeners your name, your organization, your position, and your primary research interests and your work focus? Sure. My, my name is uh, Victor Sandler, and I'm a physician. Uh, my background is internal medicine, uh, geriatric medicine, and for the last 13 and a half years, I've been practicing hospice and palliative medicine with Fairview Home Care and Hospice as a medical director of hospice for uh 10 years and then associate medical director of hospice for the last three or four years, medical director of home care. I'm also co-chair of the bioethics uh, committee at the University of Minnesota Medical Center for 20 plus years and uh, I'm the president of Minnesota uh, Network of Hospice and Palliative Care Physicians. As another uh, part of my work, I, I work with the Minnesota Medical Association, you know, project called PULST, P-O-L-S-T, that stands for Provider Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, which is an advanced care planning tool that's used for frail, elderly frail people or people with advanced serious disease so they can make choices about what types of medical treatments they do and don't want. So that's a, most of what I do. How long have you been working at Fairview Home Care and Hospice, and can you explain a little bit how you personally have become familiar with um, opioid use and the current opioid crisis? Sure. I, I've been with uh, Fairview uh, Home Care and Hospice for 13 and a half years. Uh, I did a lot of work in end-of-life care uh, in my work in geriatric medicine and took care of a lot of dying patients, which uh, came... And through that, I came to my interest not only in ethical decision-making, particularly uh, focused on ethical end-of-life decision-making, but also very interested in hospice care because that's the way, the best way we can care for people that are, that are dying, that have terminal diseases in our country. And one of the tools that we use that I had to develop expertise in as part of my work in hospice and palliative medicine was how to use opioids effectively because opioids are often our most effective tool for people that have significant issues with pain but also issues with shortness of breath or coughing that are at end of life. So I had to research that area uh, 
extensively, read about all the work that had been done, and then through my clinical work and practicing uh, with the, our hospice patients and their families, develop skills and expertise in that area. I became boarded in hospice and palliative medicine. That actually wasn't a recognized specialty until 2008. And I joined uh, Fairview Hospice in 2006, so two years later became boarded in that area. And a lot of that involved developing significant expertise in the use of opioids. For listeners who might not be quite as familiar with this particular area of public health, how would you describe kind of a high-level overview of the opioid epidemic? Well, the opioid epidemic, I think, uh, was precipitated in large measure by by two forces. Uh, the the first uh, was the, or maybe maybe there were three steps to it. The first was the designation of pain as a vital sign and the proposition uh, that pain should be much more aggressively treated. Um, both. Uh, acute pain, such as you would have after surgery, but also chronic pain, which many millions of people suffer from. Uh, and then tools were developed. In, in other words, more uh, opioid tools were developed. Uh, it, what comes to mind specifically is uh, OxyContin, which was developed, uh, gosh, I guess about you know 25 plus years ago. Uh, and then it was marketed very effectively to physicians as a tool uh, to treat chronic pain and also marketed as, a, as an opioid that was less addictive, even though that was not true, but it was marketed that way. And doctors uh, were essentially sold the a bill of goods on OxyContin and opioids. Uh, OxyContin specifically, it could be used effectively for long-term pain without leading to addiction, uh, which all opioids are addictive, including OxyContin. OxyContin is just as addictive as, as other opioids. Uh, and then the, the doctors, uh, we did not do our job effectively. And we like to talk about doing evidence-based medicine. That's, that's really the template we like to use for medical care is that we like to have solid evidence from well-done studies to show that treatments are or not effective. And the doctors basically bought the bill of goods that opioids should be used much more extensively, particularly for chronic pain, um, and began to prescribe them uh, widely to millions of people for chronic pain, when in fact there was not good literature, medical research, to validate that this was safe and effective. And it turned out it was not safe and effective, and millions of people became addicted. And um, millions of people, uh, both uh, most of them accidentally overdosed, some of them by virtue of taking excessive doses of prescribed opioid medications, some of them because they couldn't get the opioids they were addicted to any longer from their doctors and went on the streets to get other types of opioids. Um, and this uh, combination of factors led to hundreds of thousands of deaths across the country. Uh, so I think that you know doctors have subs, uh, substantial culpability here as well as the pharmaceutical industry. And when would you say um, that this all kind of started when you mentioned um, when these new tools were developed like OxyContin and how doctors were kind of just really pushed on board right away? How long ago would you say that was? Uh, it was, you know, in the range of 20 to 25 years ago, I, and, and that's when you start to see the increase in, in opioid uh, deaths as well. But I think that's when the uh, campaign to really aggressively 
market opioids and the declaration. I don't remember the year precisely, but it was in the 90s when pain became a vital sign. Um, doctors were expected to treat pain more aggressively. So why would you say it's only kind of now within the past couple years even that we've seen such an increasing impact of the opioid epidemic, even though it started, you know, many, many years ago, and now only we're seeing the after effects? Well, I I think it, I think we reached a a tipping point, if I can use that term. Uh, I think it should have been, something should have been done in a much more major way years before, because it was recognized that there were increasing opioid deaths, and the the issue with, uh, I mean, OxyContin was, uh, was found determined to be just as addictive and was was abused widely. These things were recognized, you know, many years ago, uh, but there was very little done about it. Um, and why didn't that happen? Um, I, I think that there's, uh, there's probably a lot of uh, factors why it didn't happen, but there's no good, there's no good explanation that's satisfactory to explain away the deaths of, you know, tens of thousands of people through opioids. Uh, I think that I guess when when it when we began to see that uh, not only were tens of thousands of people were dying, but we actually saw for the first time in, in, in I don't know how many decades and decades, and I don't know if it's happened in the last hundred years where the actual life expectancies uh, of uh, particularly certain groups of American males uh, started to go down. I mean, throughout the last, 100, 120, 150 years, life expectancy has gone progressively up. And in recent years, it's actually gone down in certain groups of uh, uh, men in particular. And this is in large measure related to opioid uh, deaths. And uh, there's other factors, but the opioid deaths, I think, were the major factor. And so all of these things uh, made, I think, the not only the medical community, but uh, government authorities aware that something had to be done. And yet still not enough has has been done. We still are not doing uh, anywhere near what we need to do. Uh, And I think both the government, the pharmaceutical industry, and physicians have so much responsibility for the lack of action that there is much more that needs to be done to help people that have become addicted. Uh, We've always in this country seen chemical dependency and mental illness as uh, areas of health that are stigma, have been stigmatized and inadequately resourced. And that is still the case. There's still inadequate resources being put into this area of uh, opioid addiction and mental illness for that matter, but uh, both of them have been widely stigmatized and under-resourced historically. What have been some of the biggest surprises that you've seen in your clinical work or research on the issue? I, you know, I don't know if there are surprises that I would describe as such. I mean, I, I'm always a little surprised when I see something that's the, 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 a problem of this enormity and that's ignored for as long as this has been um, with I mean, part of it, I think, is maybe uh, political paralysis that's affected the country in in recent years. Uh, But to me, that's the biggest, uh, the most unsettling thing about the opioid opioid epidemic was how long it took to really address the problem. And still, when people widely perceive 
and understand the enormity of the problem, we're still not putting enough resources into solving it. So based on that, what are you hopeful about the future of the opioid epidemic? Um, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now? And then in response to that, what would be the best solutions to addressing those challenges? We're at, we're at a very difficult time from, uh, from a physician standpoint because um, the CDC and the state of Minnesota, for, as two examples, have put together, CDC has guidelines, the state of Minnesota has legislation now uh, restricting uh, prescription of opioids, particularly for acute pain situations. Um, and outside of the area that I practice in, hospice and palliative medicine, because that area has been exempted from guidelines, uh, appropriately so, because uh, we that um, have mastered this area and have special expertise in it need to be able to use these tools and can use them safely and effectively for our patients that have serious chronic diseases that uh, clearly benefit from them. Um, the, one of the problems is that we still don't understand chronic pain very well. We don't have uh, effective tools for it that are widely available. Our insurance system is such in this country that many people, if we did have tools, um, would not have access to adequate uh, treatments. And in some cases, opioids have been effective for patients with chronic pain, and now they're being taken off the medications because doctors are worried about their liability and criminal liability for breaching uh, CDC guidelines or state laws uh, governing opioid use. So my biggest concern forward is for people with chronic pain, someone who may be uh, using opioids effectively and, and safely uh, and don't have alternatives, have not been offered alternatives. So I think that we have a lot of work to do both in the research area of looking into chronic pain, how to uh, uh, deal with this area effectively. Um, but also to be very careful about doing harm to patients that are really struggling because they have chronic pain issues. Um, and opioids may have been effective and now they're having this effective uh, modality of treatment uh, withdrawn from them. And so where do you think those changes need to um, occur to help these kind of, these groups of people? I think, you know, one area, for example, would be um, in the area of hospice and palliative medicine or pain treatment to develop uh, greater physician expertise. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that we, to give an example, um, there's what's uh, called a National Organization uh, Center for Advancement of Palliative Care, and they believe there's two levels of uh, palliative care. Palliative care is the discipline where we use uh, look at people suffering globally in terms of are they suffering uh, and try and manage the patient's symptoms, whether they be emotional, physical, or spiritual with a team of providers, uh, which means nurses, social workers, doctors, chaplains working together to help patients and families deal with these issues. We have to have more palliative care expertise in the country and people have to have more expertise, develop more experts in this discipline um, but we also have to have a better fund of knowledge and expertise uh, developed by primary care physicians, cardiologists, oncologists in this area as well. Uh, they have to have a better toolkit to deal with these is issues. And we just have to have better uh, resources to manage people with chronic pain, both research to understand it better, but when we have effective programs, 
uh, for dealing with, for helping people with chronic pain. They have to be available to them. And it has to do also with managing people that are addicted to opioids that shouldn't be on opioids, whether they have chronic pain or they're addicted, whatever the case may be, but need to be off opioids because they're such a dangerous drug. Um, and we have to have available resources to manage their chemical dependency to help them detoxify, get off opioids, and get their lives back together by effective chemical dependency treatment. So why is the opioid crisis something that everyone, not just people working here in the public health um, field, um, why, something that everyone should be concerned about? Because it, it's so, it reaches so deep into our society. I mean, so many people have had family members. I mean, there's very few families in the country that have not been touched by the opioid epidemic because it is so widespread. And in many respects, it's getting worse in the area of um, outside of medicine now. I mean, doctors are being reined in by professional guidelines, by legislative uh, restrictions, uh, state laws that are passing, uh, being passed nationwide to restrict doctors. So doctors are probably a lot of them paranoid about even prescribing opioids. And, and to some degree, that's, that's good. But Meanwhile, the opioid epidemic, uh, even though we sort of hit a plateau a bit in terms of the opioid deaths, the number of deaths from uh, fentanyl, a lot of it coming from China, and carfentanil, these very, very potent opioids that are now being placed into pills uh, manufactured outside of the pharmaceutical industry um, and the black market, and their deaths from fentanyl and carfentanil are going up ex uh, very rapidly. So, you know, we have to address this broadly as a society, um, and we have to, at, at the same time, we're trying to treat effectively people with chemical dependency and chronic pain and develop uh, proper tools for doing this. We also have to look at the law enforcement aspects um, and relationships with China. I mean, it, it, goes, it goes very broadly because China has not done a good job in uh, policing its own country where most of this the, uh, this uh, synthetic fentanyl, carfentanil, is being uh, uh, manufactured, or a great deal of it, uh, and causing many, many thousands of deaths in this country. So this is such an enormous problem, and, and my knowledge of it, uh, my expertise is, of course, on using opioids correctly, but the problem is so much greater than that. And what can people outside of the world of public health do to support the work being done um, within public health to end the opioid epidemic? I, I honestly think that the best thing people outside of uh, public health that the broader public can do is communicate with their legislators how concerned they are about the problem and that they want resources uh, utilized properly for chemical dependency for mental illness in a way that uh, where there's parity uh, in healthcare insurance for chemical dependency, um, what's seen as traditional medical problems and mental illness problems, all of those should be have equal funding. Paul Wellstone tried to forward that years and years ago, and we're not there now. And we still do not have adequate resources to deal specifically with these uh, people that are dependent on opioids. It has to be much more accessible and um, has to be resourced adequately. We need to invest in this in a much, much greater way. A lot of this may happen because of the lawsuits that are happening nationally against the pharmaceutical industry, because these industries made billions and billions of dollars addicting people to opioids. 
and that sounds kind of pejorative that I'm saying they addicted them, but I think that they had a they had a, an enormous they have an enormous responsibility, um, and doctors have an enormous responsibility too because you know, doctors facilitated this uh, whole process and wrote a lot wrote millions of prescriptions, um, and didn't do their homework when it came to looking at opioids and how dangerous they were. So I would I would advise people to make sure that. Um, their legislators are looking at this problem and making sure that resources are provided in a, in a, a massive way to take care of people that need the care for these problems. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention, something maybe that we didn't touch upon or briefly discuss, but you'd like to expand upon just to clarify some topics or anything for our listeners? I think that, you know, there's an old... Uh, saying in medicine, uh, the secret of caring for patients is to care about the patient. And I think that is so fundamental, not only for the way we should approach any patient that confronts us, but specifically when we have a hurdle to overcome, like the bias that many people have, including physicians, for people with mental illness or chemical dependency. Um, We are working on a program right now to try and standardize the treatment for people that are addicted to IV drugs and are suffering from endocarditis as a consequence of their IV drug use, who have been, in many centers across the country, have not been offered adequate treatment for their endocarditis in terms of surgical treatments because of the feeling that they're contributing to their own problem by continuing to use IV drugs. This is part of the stigmatization that's occurred for people that are afflicted with chemical dependency. And we have to care about the people, these people this way that we care about people that have heart attacks or strokes or cancer. And uh, they deserve that kind of care. Thank you so much, Dr. Sandler, for taking the time to speak with us. We hope that these public health perspectives on the opioid crisis provide our listeners with new or better understandings of how we can all impact this issue in public health. Thanks for listening to this episode of Perspectives. We'd like to extend a big thank you to our featured guests for taking the time to speak with us and share their expertise with our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to check out the other episodes of this podcast, as well as our journal publications. You can find all this and more at our website, z.unn.edu slash pubhealthreview. Thank you again for listening to Perspectives.